and welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance, and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. I'm so excited to introduce you to Sarah Davidson, otherwise known as a spoonful of Sarah. She is honestly one of the most genuine, fun-loving, warm and intelligent women that I've ever met. And she's had such a colorful career from lawyer to multi-business owner and now has her own podcast called Seize the Yay. If you have not tapped into that podcast yet, you need to stop and go and listen to that first because it's phenomenal. This is a great interview on how being a high achiever and loving life can also come at a cost. We talk about adrenal fatigue and anxiety attacks. And we touch on our own personal experience and offer some really great tips to try if they resonate for you. We also go deep into the importance of getting to know yourself and what works for you personally. It's one of those conversations that I wish I could have all day. And I really hope that you take away as much as I did from this podcast. So welcome to the podcast, Sarah. It's so exciting to have you on here. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor. I'm so excited to chat with you. And particularly knowing this is before, you know, it's launched officially, I'm very honored. I know, I know. And for those that are listening, that there's something even really more exciting about that. Sarah is the reason I have started podcasting because she was the second person I ever listened to. And I listened to about I reckon 10 of yours in a row. And I was like, oh my God, she's amazing and intelligent and loves people and just is so in tune with others. And it it is why I'm here today having this conversation. And to think that I'm having it with you is just incredible. So thank you. Oh my gosh, that means so much. And it means so much that you listen to 10 episodes in a row and still want to listen to my voice. I don't even <laughs> understand why you would volunteer for that. But it's an honor. I mean, I think more and more as time goes goes on, you kind of measure your success with something based on different metrics, maybe to the way that you started and influencing or, or helping push someone into the world of podcasting when they might not otherwise have been interested or, or, you know, felt that they could like that to me is the ultimate success. It makes me so excited to think that you've now joined podcast land and um, yeah, welcome. I'm so excited for you. <laughs> Thank you. It's that ripple effect that often you don't get to hear about, right? Like if we weren't having this conversation today, you wouldn't even know that. So I um, know. <laughs> I have to remember to um, make sure I tell people those things as they have that impact and influence on people around the world. And you're up in Hamilton Island at the moment. Tell me about that. <laughs> I was. I came home last night. I had just the most incredible week with EO, Entrepreneurs Organization, actually. I was emceeing their conference. They have a yearly conference, which hasn't actually been able to happen, obviously, for the past couple of years. So it's been a long time coming, but I've sort of in the last... So minus the two years of the pandemic, in the last two years other than that, I'd, I've started moving more from kind of giving keynotes to emceeing, which to me aligns a lot more with the skill set of a podcaster is like 
pulling all the threads of what other people are talking about in their stories and kind of tying it up in a nice little bow. And it, it's been a privilege to do that in person again. I mean, doing it on yes. Zoom was an absolute nightmare. Yes. <laughs> but it was just one of those weeks of really remembering how beautiful it is to get a room full of humans who are interested and interesting and just see what happens. Like magic happens. And then when you obviously, if you're on Hamilton Island making that kind of magic, <laughs> the inspiration is coming thick and fast. So it's been extraordinary. Oh, I can't even imagine being in a room of that, like those kind of people and just, it would just light your fire and, you know, just being around a group of people that are so inspiring and energetic would just, you know, walking into that room would be incredible. And I've never been to Hamilton Island. So was the weather beautiful? (gasps) It was amazing. It just couldn't have been more perfect. Every day was beautifully sunny. It wasn't suffocatingly hot or intolerably humid. It was just beautiful, clear skies. You could watch the sunrise, the sunset, The oh. like the sky is a, like the rainbow of colours. It changes all through the day. There were turtles just swimming around. Oh. It was just like the postcard version of the Sundays is what it was every single day. And I had unfinished business with Hamo because my husband and I had gone for the first time. It's always been on my bucket list, but we've, we're those typical Australians who had always jet-setted overseas and never really tapped into the, you know our domestic beauties. So we're like, oh, we'll do Hamilton Island like one day. And last year there was a tiny opening in between lockdowns and our friends were up there who had been living in Queensland and they had an apartment. So we we're like, oh, you know, let's wait until the last day to make sure there's you know, Victoria isn't going to stop us coming back in. So we obviously got the most expensive flights. We hadn't been away for two years. So we were like, who cares? Let's just go and do it. Let's have a week up there with friends. We landed. The news came out that Brisbane and the Gold Coast, which are the only airports you can fly out of, they were about to go into lockdown. So we turned around and went back home. Oh, no. Oh, my God. You didn't think just to stay there? I would have been like, I'm here. I'm not going back. Well, we were going to, but the island was going to lockdown. Ah. So already it's obviously an island. So it's, you know, there's only kind of one of everything. There's one IGA, one pharmacy, one cafe. We didn't bring supplies or anything. So if it had lockdown, you know, we didn't have anything with us to prepare for that kind of scenario. Yeah. And everything, you know, we had so much back home that we had, you know, the, and Victoria was not in lockdown at that time. So we were kind of like, oh, and the like the 12 hours that we had there it was overcast and raining, which is, you know, it does happen. It was the middle of winter, but, you know, so I didn't see its full glory. And then this yes. time I was like, <gasps> I understand. This is amazing. And your husband didn't, did he come up this time or have you got it? Yes. I was going to say, otherwise you've got to book another trip. (laughs) I know. So we had, I was emceeing in Brisbane beforehand and it just lined up that the two Queensland gigs were sort of back to back, but I had a day in between. It had been my birthday on the Thursday and because I'd left straight away, we didn't get to do anything. So we were like, why don't you just fly up and spend, you know, two nights and three kind of days. And that, you know, when you're up there, it feels like much longer. So we had a little, you know, bit of time together, which was oh. just lovely. And then he headed home and I worked the rest of the week. Oh, amazing. That's kind of the dream job. You know, when you're younger and you're in your twenties and it's like, what do you want to do? I want to be working where I just get to travel to Hamilton Island and do a week's work. <gasps> <laughs> Every day I woke up and I was like, it is a Wednesday. Old me would have been sitting, you know, in an office, not hating life, but definitely not soaking up the views at Hamilton Island. Yes. Like it's just pinch me moments back yeah. to back. 
Yeah, which I really want to get into today in the podcast. I can't wait to ask you about all the businesses and how you've gotten to where you are. But I do like to start the podcast with one of the questions just to get to know you a little bit around if you were to use an animal to describe you, what animal would it be and why? Oh, love that question. I love animals so much. It has always been pandas and I think like that's mildly racist because I'm obviously (laughs) have Asian heritage, but I just love, I've always loved pandas. My husband has always called me a panda because when we first got together, which was like 12 years ago now, so a very long time ago, we were still kind of in the going out late, not taking your makeup off, going to sleep, wake, you know, waking up and I would have rubbed my eyes and I'd wake up with these big panda eyes. (laughs) And also I've got like two totally conflicting personalities. One is you know, productivity, achievement, growth, woo, busy. And the other one is like a panda, like lie on my butt and chew food and just sleep. Just rest. Yeah, like eat, sleep, eat, sleep, eat, sleep. (laughs) And yeah, that side of my personality he obviously sees a lot and he's just like, you are like, whenever we see pandas in the zoo, they look like a person in a panda suit. They're just so funny. And he's like, oh, look, it's you. You're just eating and sleeping and eating and sleeping. So yeah, definitely pandas. It's so good to hear you say that because I actually sometimes think if people saw me at home, they wouldn't believe it, right? Like I'm so busy and always like in the public eye, people see it as being stretching and growing and doing new stuff and busy and from one thing to another. At home, I'm like still, you know, I don't even get up to turn the light off. I'm like, that can stay on. I'm just going to snuggle up on the couch. Mate, I am like embarrassingly lazy. Mm Mm-hmm. Like I I have a thing called Sloth Sunday, which, and, you know, as we will discuss, it's, it's only come through a lot of not taking any of those kind of rest days and and knowing, you know, the cost that you pay if you don't. But now that I've, like, once I flip a switch, then I go all in and that includes going all in at rest and laziness. And so on a Sunday, the trigger word for me was Sloth Sunday. So that if I ever was doing anything a sloth wouldn't do, you know, I was like, oh, okay, well, I'm doing too many things. Like slot, I, the aim is to move as little as possible. And if that means like sleeping in all day and literally lying down and not moving and just being like the worst, laziest human being ever and getting Nick to like go and pick up the remote, which is like five metres away from me because I don't want to get up. That's how I get it goes. <laughs> I'm hearing you. But also I think that what you just said there, I'm just going to pick up on is that that one liner, it's lost Sunday, is enough probably to overcome that critic when it comes up and says you should be doing something or how can you just be lying here? I don't know if that's your voice, but um, do you get that voice that comes up? Not as much now because I think I've had so many years of seeing how bad it can get if you don't do mm. that. So there's, I've learned to override that. It still happens, of course, and particularly when you you know first take a, a few days off. In the first few days, it's loud, and then as the days progress, you know you get better at it. But definitely, it's been a recurring theme of being like, you could be using this time more productively. Like you are being so lazy. Look at what other people are doing. Everyone yeah. else is catching up to you. You know, like all those kinds of really unproductive productive thoughts. But I think like anything in life, that learning to override the unproductive thoughts and replace them with things that are more helpful to where you want to get to in whatever area that might be, whether it's health or business or whatever. Yeah. That override mechanism is really important. Mm. And that's what that like Sloth Sunday, it's like one simple slogan that you can just bring in that like, 
is so packed with so many meaning, you know? And so when you hear that voice come up, you can just be like, it's last Sunday. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, literally. And like people have the neighborhood, like I, I like to call people who listen to CCA is the neighborhood. People on, I think it was one of our anniversaries, like the second year or maybe the first year, a listener who I'd never met, she was like, I would love to send you a gift for, you know, just how much yay you've brought to a really tough time, blah, blah, blah. And oh. instead of a gift, because I know you're not, you know, super material, I adopted a sloth for you. <gasps> Oh, my God. Right. And I got this little certificate with all these photos. Oh, my it's God. Sharon the Sloth at Two-Toed Sloth Conservation Foundation. It was like oh. the loveliest gift anyone has ever given me because yes. it was so thoughtful. And, oh, and also just encouraging that part that it sounds like you've had to work so hard to get an embrace and now the world's embracing it with you. That excites yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> and isn't it weird that you actually have to work hard to rest? Like it, it's so yeah. counterintuitive, but you do. For some and including myself, it's a skill. You have to learn it and you have to practice it and you're not always going to get it right and you'll fall over. But the more you practice it, the easier it becomes and the stronger you get. Like It's like a muscle, right? You keep flexing and flexing and then it gets stronger and stronger and then it gets easier and easier. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the other question that I really love to ask, and I feel like we could stay on the first two questions for the whole podcast, um, <laughs> is did you have a favorite room or a place when you were growing up? Oh, goodness. Yes. I think there's probably a few that come to mind, but the main one, and I probably didn't appreciate it as much Maybe it's more retrospectively that I think it was my favourite place. But my mum grew up in a small country town near Lake Eildon called Alexandra. I think it's got maybe, I don't know what the population is, but, you know, a thousand people. Like it's quite small. I, I love and that you say that small. I grew up in a town with 200 people. So when you were saying oh, small, I was thinking like 50, 100. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, it's really small. There's a thousand people. Yeah, there are I mean, it's the big smoke to you. <laughs> but, I mean, compared to like, city kids we yes. you know we thought it was there were definitely times where we thought it was like the most boring place in the world because there weren't you know the internet didn't really well obviously there wasn't the internet when we were that young but yeah. you know for there were years where I was like this is the most boring place in the entire world but it was just you know my grandmother for the first sort of I think 13 or 14 years of my life she was still alive and she lived in the house and now I mean I treasure it so much because it's the, it's exactly the same as when my mum grew up in it. So like the same textiles, the clashing, there's like 85 different patterns of florals and all clashing colours and everything, like the same crockery and the same cutlery, the same, the pharmaceutical cabinet still has, it's like a museum in there. Like there's the original <laughs> packaging of like Dove and everything. And it's just always been a safe place that mm. just had so much joy in it. We would be like barefoot. We'd make cubbies outside and sleep under the stars. We'd just potter because there wasn't that much to do. We'd, you know, it's and every Easter from the time we were children, like my mum, my auntie, their closest friends who are sort of our family friends, but we call them the aunties. We would all go up together and my brother and I would just be surrounded by our closest family members and we'd do our Easter egg hunts. And like that was the uh, time of the year where all of us were there together. And we still do that. And it's just got 
this, I don't know, I sort of feel like if the world, if there was an apocalypse, I would run there and I just feel like I could bunker down there for the rest of my life and feel safe and yeah. it just, yeah, it's just a really beautiful place. We went to church, we did, like my mum grew up obviously in a, a different generation, very religious family, went to church every Sunday and we went to Sunday school and were there but it was much more social, like everyone in the town knew us. We know everyone. We knew the piano player. We knew the baker. We knew, you know, we knew their children and we played at this, you know, pool. And it was just like, you know, they say it takes a village to raise a child. And in the mm -hmm. cities, it's been a long time, I think, since you got those whole towns raising a child mm -hmm. and children being able to run to lots of different people. But we kind of got that. Even though we grew up in the city, we kind of got that experience. And yeah. I have such fond memories that we still keep creating. And do you like now try and create that in your world? Like do you try and create like community and like because sometimes it's when we look back on that childhood that we think they were the precious moments, they're the things I'm taking away. How do I kind of get that in my life and world now? Absolutely. Like mm. firstly, keeping that tradition like actually replicating the Easter tradition every year. We we never book travel. We never book jobs. Like all of us know that that weekend and the sort of two or three days either side, as long as we can make it last, we all go back, take piles of books. We barely touch yeah. our phones. We watch DVDs. Wow. We only got internet that really works there like a couple of years ago. We go to like the local dairy to get our breakfast every morning and we still like do all the same things that we used to do, which is just really beautiful. But I think – you know, we don't have children yet. We really hope to. And I will try and create, you know, that you don't quite have the same neighborhoods where you all like play cricket on the road anymore. You know, that kind of thing is a lot more rare, a lot more mm. difficult to create, but I desperately want to create that in whatever way I can. And same in business. It's like, it can be really isolating, but at any chance I have to be with other people and either bring other people along in some way or be brought along by someone else. I think if you actively seek that out, you can have a community. Mm. And we're doing a 360. I mean, we've definitely moved away from that, but I, f I think and feel since COVID in particular, it's like people are really gravitating towards community and, and trying to feel that connection with people again. Mm. Mm. And we, I think we have realised, you know, one of the things when we'll probably talk about this later, but with the cafe that we found, you know, started Match Milk Bar, it was a plant-based cafe, but the the biggest reason why wasn't because of, you know, animal ethics or any kind of activism. Like, obviously, that was a big part of it as kind of peripheral part of it. But the main reason was looking at the blue zones and the, the five areas of the world where people live the longest, like dramatically longer than anywhere else. And one of the main things they have in common, they've been studied extensively to look for this longevity and where it comes from. One of the things was a majority plant-based diet by accident, not because everyone in the town is vegan, but because that's just what they sustainably have access yeah. to to eat. But the other thing was connection and connection for, you know, all the way into your your elderly years. People aren't just living longer, but they live richly into their 90s. And, you know, there are, it, there's more centenarians than any you know, in those blue zones than anywhere else. And it's because the communities, like they either have intergenerational households where the grandparents live with the family. So they're mm -hmm. around young people, they're around young energy. They're not just, you know, there's no word for old age home in Japan. It just doesn't exist because your elders are brought into the community and kept there. You know, they're not just like shut away. Yeah. But they have these like weekly meetings where all the elders come together and they play mahjong or they, you know, whatever it is. It's the connection and the community and belonging to something. Yes. 
that actually extends your life. And the world that we're in has allowed us, you know, so many wonderful things, but also to become very isolated mm-hmm. and self-centric. Yep. And I think we have to create that connection through other things, whether it be sport or cultural groups. And we, I think our generation probably doesn't have that you know, rooted in religion as much as probably our parents did. You know, people had their church groups or, you know, and given we, you know, maybe don't have that as much, we, I think, need to find it through other communities. Hey, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you are and you'd like to learn more or engage further with our podcast community, you can do this in our Facebook group. Just search for Challenges That Change Us on Facebook or look in the link in our show notes. In this group, we'll be sharing extra content and giving further background to our episodes. So I hope to see you there. But for now, let's get back to the episode. As you were talking, I was thinking about the three Ps, the people, place, and purpose, and you've mm-hmm. kind of hit two of them already, and I'm sure we'll get into purpose because that's kind of, you know, something that, that we hear you talk about a lot. But, you know, the place is like that that place that you go to that you feel grounded and connected and then people is who are your people you know who lifts you up who holds you who helps you get through things who do you lean on and then there's there's purpose which is like what is it that drives you where does your passion are you living that um are there other ways that you can live that a little bit more because that's when I was when I was doing heaps of research on you and this is you know it was really hard to work out what to talk about because every time I did any more kind of reading, it like opened up this new door or this new chapter of your life or this new color. And I was like, wow. And then I feel like I'd go down this rabbit warren and then something else would open up. I'm like, where does this end? You know, like you have done so many things. And that's that high achieving part of you when you talk about the sloth, you know, the one that can chill out and totally relax and have that downtime. Then there's this other side, which is incredible. And I was thinking maybe we could have a little chat about that and usually I start at the beginning but with you I actually want to start from now you know like what are you doing now what does that look like what have you grown in the last you know 10 years (laughs) we're we're on a time frame here though so (laughs) I know well then don't ask me someone else should tell my story of all my strengths telling a short story is not one of them so please interrupt me if I'm being too verbose (laughs) so there's no guarantee we're going to get through anything we plan today for those listening but we will be a fun ride anyway (laughs) Uh, yeah it's uh, funny, we were, you know, even just the Hamilton Island job, it doesn't really like I still don't really know how to describe what I do because it's been the process of so many dots that have connected that I didn't even know, I, you know, I was laying down or that I never planned. And I think the beauty of being alive in this day and age is that there's no longer an expectation that you'll pick one forever job and you'll last in that, you know, mm. for your whole lifetime. You, our average, I think, is nine to 12 different careers in our life. And that's a incredibly exciting. I mean, it's overwhelming, but it's also exciting that you're not meant to be a static person for your entire life. The chapter that I'm in right now, I think is, is I wouldn't, I can't even describe it as like one business or one project or even one goal. I'm very much, I have spent a lot of the last 10 years being quite proactive, but I think one of the silver linings of the pandemic has been switching to reactive in a nice way, in a way that I don't plan a year ahead because you couldn't, there was just no certainty. But it did mean that I just sort of said yes to lots of random things that don't necessarily make sense. But because you're not 
stuck to a rigid plan, it means you get to explore things you might never have explored. So I, I have the main anchor at the moment is Seize the A, which started as a podcast. It's an overarching life philosophy, but very much the, the original manifestation was a podcast. And that's sort of an episode a week. It started as an episode a week in the pandemic. It, it upped to two episodes a week. And it's really focusing on storytelling to express the idea that we've, you know, we're very much in a hustle culture. The idea is seizing the day, you know, goals, achieving productivity, the glorification of busy, which is all wonderful, but it can end up with you being so busy, but not in any direction. And also perhaps to the exclusion of your happiness. So the idea has been to switch that dialogue to what makes you yay, what ignites you the most, what brings you happiness and fulfillment, because no one gets to the end of their life and says, I wish I worked more, really, yes. is, is the sort of, you know. So Seize the A is the, the anchor. There's a book. There's some merchandise. There's jewellery. It's just a whole embracing of bringing joy back to the forefront of, you know, a very negative news cycle of a culture where controversy is very celebrated. That kind of extended into public speaking, emceeing, which is what I was doing in in Queensland. I do, you know, a lot of ambassadorships that I know there's such a negative connotation around the word influencer. I would say storyteller. I kind of work with businesses to bring to life stories of their employees or what they're trying to achieve or how they they found their yay, as well as, you know, singing the praises of the products that they're doing, but but also the stories behind the scenes. Yeah. I was just going to ask about that. So I, I haven't seen that. So you're going into businesses to help them have that story because we're learning more and more, I think, this today that how important that story is. People are getting mm. attracted to understanding where people have come from or how businesses have grown. Mm. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I probably have spent a bit of time doing, you know, uh, like one branch of my work has been your your conventional, not that it's conventional, but influencer kind of mm. work, working with businesses to promote the things they're doing and, and only ever things that I would already use or that I really align with. But it's really evolved into now one of the companies I am so thrilled to work with and privileged to work with is L'Oreal. And when I was a lawyer, you know, my big dream was to one day work as in-house counsel at L'Oreal. <laughs> now I get to work with them in this incredible capacity of I'm not engaged to speak about any of the products, even though I use them, even though I love them. My role is to help. I'm interviewing the CEO to talk about how they're building sustainability into their practices and diversity into their workplace. And last year I did a mini series on the podcast about the fellowship that they're doing for women in science because science is behind what they do at L'Oreal, even though it's beauty. I didn't have to talk about beauty. I got to talk to an Iranian battery engineer about the way that she's you know, she won a fellowship that allowed her to further her research into clean energy. And that was the first fellowship that's been offered to women in STEM and those industries that they're allowed to use on childcare. Like that kind of thing makes me so excited. And so it is still like influencer work that I, you know, promote through social media but to me it's just got so much heart and yeah. I don't really know how to describe it as a job no but that's when what you're I do. talking about it it doesn't <laughs> sound influencer like when I think about influencers it's like you know and I'm not a huge social media person so anyone that's you know listening out there you won't I'm not great at it so um take this with a grain of salt but I always think about influencers as you know everyone follows and follows what they say just because they say it but what you're talking about is being so fascinated in the business and what got them going and what got them to where they are and the science that sits behind it or you know what are the building blocks that make it up and who are the people within that story it's kind of like the nerdy version of influencing the business version it's the business version 
<laughs> and of course, I still talk about their products, like because I feel like even from within a company, if I was working within a company, if you want someone to be really excited about the products that you sell or the services that you offer, they're going to be much more excited about the story behind that. Like if I hear a really cool story, I'll buy whatever you you tell me to buy because I want to support what you're doing. If you only tell me about the product, like it's just sort of a product and everyone has, you know, other people have products. So I think it's been really cool to see even the consumer appetite to hear more about behind the scenes. Most people don't just want to buy something now. They want to know what they're buying into that goes beyond that and that's really cool definitely and and that's what you know one of the things that really has drawn me to you when I listen to you talk is that savviness that sits behind business and your like intellect around being able to actually think about things and to draw things in and to draw from your experiences to be able to describe stuff like your ability and I don't know whether that's to do with your law or what you did through school but like words are definitely up your alley (laughs) like finding (laughs) beautiful ways to describe things but also hitting the punch you know like getting right in there and really I don't know it's just like hitting the mark oh thank you so much that's so kind (laughs) (laughs) so tell us tell us then um so you did also have match the maiden and match the milk bar yes so the original journey out of corporate was oh there's really no short way to tell the story but very accidental. So the way that the whole CZA philosophy came about is that I worry not so much about people who are actively unhappy in their life because my theory is inevitably that the discomfort will get so much that they'll go, I've had enough, I'm going to change my life. I worry about people who were the me who were actually fine. I never hated law. I never hated corporate. I didn't leave because I was trying to escape. I found the gratification of promotions and progress and prestige. I got off on that shit. Like it was a good time. There were really good learning opportunities, amazing mentors. I got to work in Hong Kong. You know, I had a really cool trajectory that did tick a lot of boxes. So I might have ended up there forever because Mm. once you're good, if you're not actively uncomfortable, you know, you could sit in that for the rest of your life. But never know how much better it could be because Mm. gratitude can also be blinding sometimes. It can stop you from looking out for anything else. So it was only by a very happy accident that my husband, my now husband, has a creative agency. He sponsored an incredible campaign that got to support a school in Rwanda. We got to go and visit the school for about a month and two things happened there. One, I saw happiness without success or without success as we understood it. Had never distinguished those concepts before. Yeah. Blew my mind. Two, got a gut parasite. Came home, lost 15 kilos, got very sick. That's how adrenal fatigue happened because my body was just so compromised. Didn't know how to listen to any of the signs. I collapsed at work and then had really long, we will go into this, but a really long recovery and learning to sort of respect my body. But in that process, I was banned from coffee and alcohol and lots of different things, but mainly coffee. And in the process of finding a healthier alternative to caffeination, I found matcha powder. And I was sent to the law firm's headquarters in Hong Kong. And in Asia, matcha powder isn't sort of the buzzword and the new thing that it is now. It's very accessible, but not cool. And the health benefits, the ceremonial background is what drew the Eastern audience to it, but the Western audience wanted spirulina, antioxidants. Like we wanted that stuff and it wasn't being highlighted. So when we came back home, my husband and I couldn't find any and I still wasn't drinking coffee. I only wanted matcha. We accidentally ordered 
wholesale bulk amount of matcha. I didn't know what to do with it, <laughs> put it in bags. We're like, oh, we'll sell it, you know, just to one or two people and accidentally started a business that sold out in a week. We just had wow. no idea that, you know, other people knew what this thing was but couldn't find it anywhere and we just slipped into this very timely gap in the market that then – grew beyond anything we'd ever expected and and that's how I left law was six months in. I sort of hit this like they're mutually exclusive now. You can't do both. You've got to pick one or the other. Yeah. And then Matcha Maiden was the business that that sort of initially led to that first step out of corporate, which is then what led to Seize the A, which is then, you know, that was seven years ago now. Yeah. Uh, the word, I just, I just slipped into it. I mean, I'm sure there was so much hard work that went into that, but it's more in that sense that it's that when that opportunity comes knocking and we don't always need to take them. And as, as someone that is a high achiever, it's like, yes, I could do this and I could do this and I could do this and it's wonderful. But that's one of those opportunities. That's one of those moments, sliding door moments that where something happens and you could have easily have gone in another direction and something else would have been amazing but at this time it just opened up this whole new life and creative side like law my background I studied psych law at uni and I loved law but it's so cut and dry you know it's Mm. so how do we monitor risk or what do we put in place to stop that from happening? And what you're working on now is almost the opposite. It's like, let's jump into risk. Like what else could we do here? Like how else Mm. could we try that? Is that right? Absolutely. That's what I often talk about is that my training, my six years at uni, then the three years at the law firm, that was a decade. Sorry, I can't add nine. My four years at a law firm, 10 years, a decade. (laughs) Great at math. (laughs) I'm just laughing because if my best friend's on this listening, she is going to laugh so hard because I can never get the numbers. I'm always like 20 years, five years, and it's like all the yeah. same. You know, 45, you get the yeah. gist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I actually love maths, but separately I'm like really bad at normal everyday arithmetic. <laughs> but, you know, that was a decade of learning how to identify what's going to go wrong and avoid it at yes. all costs. Yes. And then to swap to an industry where you're meant to not even think about the risks or or acknowledge them and be like, screw this, Jump I'm going to anyway. do it anyway. <laughs> it is the literal opposite skill set. But I think there is a type of person who finds the risk-averse, very analytical jigsaw puzzle of yep. law enormously fulfilling. And there are people like me who could do it. And also I think sometimes we get very distracted by if, you, if you're okay or quite good at something, you think you should use that skill. Yeah. But my creative side, which has actually always been more dominant, was like dying a slow death because it's not a – it can be creative in certain ways, but for an artistically creative brain, law does not leave any time or space no, for that. No. And you mentioned earlier about the adrenal fatigue. That really interests me because that's something that is quite, can be quite common that's very rarely spoken about. Like mm. some people will be listening and thinking, I, I, I've kind of heard that word before, but I don't really know what that means. Are you able to take us back and talk to us about like what were the first signs? How did you know something mm. was going on? Yeah, it's such a great question and I think why it's so difficult and why a lot of people still don't really talk about it as much and same with chronic fatigue syndrome is that the diagnosis isn't really clear-cut. There's not really a test that you can do for either of them. It does venture a little bit from 
Western clear-cut medicine into more alternative philosophies and Eastern medicine to even get that diagnosis in the first place. So it's hard to talk about because it's not like, you know, a really clear diagnosis where you kind of go to the doctor, you get told, you get a prescription or you get a, you know, do a tailing plan and Mm. it's all kind of, you know, straightforward and not obviously not easy, but straightforward. Mm. And that's why it is really hard because firstly, the gut parasite, I'd never had food poisoning like symptoms. I wasn't sort of really unwell acutely in Africa. I wasn't unwell when I came home. I went back to work, obviously. I didn't really know that anything was wrong because that's the nature of some you know, longer term illnesses is that they are cumulative. So mm. the first thing was my digestion because it was in the gut. So I slowly, slowly, my appetite was curbed. My digestion would flare up over most like inflammatory foods like alcohol. I'd be bloated for days. I started to get hangover like symptoms, but for like days after one drink, gluten and dairy would just be pain, like doubled over. And those things I hadn't really had before. So that, you know, for a start was weird. Did you do anything with that? Or you were like, oh no, it's just, I just, you know, this is just life or I'm just going to keep going. I was like, just, I'm tired. And then I thought, oh, maybe I'm gluten intolerant. Like I literally just thought there was a lot of discussion and conversation around IBS and, you know, people having gluten intolerances and stuff and then manifesting later in life. So I was like, oh, it's just that. It's fine. And I'm tired. You know, Mm. I've, I've been, you know, this is my first year of full-time work. I've never done this before. So you kind of, you do just assume that it's other things. You can give yourself the language, right? You can kind of be like, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. It must just be this, you know, I've had a big week or COVID or, you know, so often we just like put it away. We're like, oh, that's just normal. Don't complain. Get on with life. Totally. And if you've never had an experience that makes you block out the noise and listen to the signs your body's giving you, then you don't actually know what you're recognizing because mm-hmm. you've just never realized your body's so clever. As soon as something's out of whack, it'll tell you. But if you're not listening to it or you don't know what it, what it will look like when it tells you something, you just keep going. So, And also I was a first year law student. I was like, well, I can't, I'm not taking a day off. Like mm. that's not what I'm going to do. So I just kept working. But combined with probably the stress of, you know, working long hours and stuff like that, I ended up literally losing 15 kilos because I just couldn't eat enough food. But because it was gradual, my husband didn't really notice. I didn't really notice. My mum didn't really notice. It was only friends who I hadn't seen for a really long time. Now, later, they're like, we thought you had an eating disorder, but we didn't want to say anything in case you were doing it like on purpose. And it was just like, you know, other people were noticing, but but because it was gradual, we didn't. And so kept working. My body was like, this is enough. You are not listening to what I'm telling you. And I collapsed at work. I just in the middle of a meeting was like, I'm going to have a heart attack or I'm going to vomit on someone. I don't know which it is. So I ran to the bathroom and it was, now I know it was a panic attack. It was like mm. your throat closes over, physiological, numb, like can't walk, like all kinds of dizziness, all kinds of things. And that started three months pretty much of not really going into the office and doing all the tests to figure out like what was going on. Why was I had no energy? Why was I losing Mm. weight for no, like not no reason, but why couldn't I eat? Why had that, you know, degraded so much? Doing all the blood tests and stuff and adrenal fatigue doesn't, and neither do most gut parasites. They don't come up on blood tests, conventional Mm. ones. So you've got to, you eliminate all those, then you go back and then you, you know, I spent like a lot of time at doctors trying to work out what was going on. And it was only an acupuncturist who was like, oh, it's definitely your gut. Like, 
the energy is all in this area of your stomach. It's hotter, like something's going on there. So then that, you know, led to like, you know, the colonoscopy, gastroscopy, like it helped, you know, isolate where things were. Then we figured out the gut parasite, but all the fatigue and everything else was my adrenals were also just completely burnt out again, because I was like 15 kilos lighter. My adrenals were loading so much more in the three months that I ignored everything and just kept trying to work. And also it I don't know if this is it, but I'm thinking as well, the doctors probably were like, you know, you're super intelligent, you're really active, you do everything like you would tell us if something was wrong as in, you know, like you must be fine, you'll be fine, just wait it out, see what happens kind of thing. Mm. You know, in those initial stages when people start to really, their body starts to crash like that, it's almost such a rude shock to the person but also the people around them. It's like, no, you you know, you'll be fine, just, just have a rest or take a weekend off or, yeah. Yeah. And then I think when it really – so we kind of started to be able to resolve that by a, a really strict elimination diet with no inflammatory things so that I could just get enough calories to then start putting on weight, which then helped my stomach be able to digest more. Like the, the gut thing, we worked it out and then gradually were able to start building back towards – getting back to a healthy weight and figured everything else would resolve as that happened. Like, of course, you're tired when you've got, you're missing a big percentage of your body. (laughs) But then adrenal fatigue really became the missing jigsaw puzzle piece when I had restored my weight and was eating really well and back to sort of exercising and going to work, but meditating, all those kinds of things, and still wasn't well. That's when we're like, okay, well, it isn't the weight that they're two different things. And that again, took like months and months to figure out because there is no real diagnosis for it. It's just like, it's not anything else basically, but you're still having all these intense exhaustion, fatigue, anemia, like all these kind of different manifestations of not just not being well with no real explanation. What was that like for you going through that? horrifying. Yeah. For someone who had A, never really had to separate my identity from productivity and also gets my sense of not not just sense of self-worth, but also sense of excitement for life mm. through doing. Lying in a bed, bedridden, eating salt and vinegar chips because you can't digest anything else and you don't have energy to get up to go to the toilet by yourself. Like that is awful. It is so- It's almost soul destroying. It is because you're sort of like, I'm actually a shell. You know, when people say I'm a shell of a human, you're actually a shell of a human. Mm -hmm. Like you literally can't do the things that make life meaningful. Mm -hmm. And so you just kind of lose your personality in there as well. Like you get into this weird echo chamber of like, who am I? Yeah. What am I here for? Yeah. And then you go into like, why? Why does this happen to me? What am I supposed to learn? But then you're too tired to even take a lesson out of it. So you're just like, this sucks. Yeah. Life is crappy like why am I here and when will it end yeah I was gonna say whether it's like if someone could just tell me this was for a month I'd be right I could do this you know I'd just snuggle up in the couch watch tv whatever but it's like there's no we don't know what's going on we don't know how to fix it we don't know what to do yeah and you literally get to like there were days and I I often forget that this is sort of where I my mind was at. But, you know, there are days where I was like, will I ever work again? Mm-hmm. Like genuinely will I be able to hold down a job? Yeah. And, and law, like I can't do this career if I can't work the hours that I need to work. Like is this the end of everything? Yeah. And it seems like now looking back knowing I came through it, it's like, I forget that those thoughts were so valid because I'm like, oh, well, obviously you got through it, dude. Like it was fine. You weren't like, you know, dying. But in the moment, I was like, am I dying? Like, is this the genuine mm-hmm. slow shutting down of all my functions? It's crazy listening to you talk because I've just had 11 months off work being really sick and they still don't know. But that was what I kept saying was, am I dying? 
Mm. To my close people, I'm like, is this it? Like, is Mm. this a slow death is what Mm. it felt like. So when you're talking, I'm like, oh, yep, I can hear that. (laughs) You know, I know that, know that. So how did you, how did you manage? Oh, my goodness. I think having my now husband and my mum is like my best friend in the world and my younger brother is an absolute legend and my auntie is like having my immediate people be just so giving, patient, wise, like you just rally your your smallest bubble. Yeah. I didn't even tell anyone else. So many obviously people at work knew, but I had always, you know, been quite busy and my hours at the time had made it made catch ups predictably like very hard. Yeah. So I was able to kind of buckle myself down just to work it out and heal in a very internal way and just wait it out, really. Like do all the things that you could throw at it, see all the people literally change my diet, do supplements, do acupuncture, do meditation. Like I just threw everything that I could with the right support around me so that in the moments where I was like, what is going on? Yeah. And not expect too much of yourself, really a lot of dialogue. I had a psychologist, like there are just so many aspects of it that I just had to hunker down and make healing my only priority, mm. not worry about getting back to work and let alone getting back to work but getting back to productive work or achieving. Like those things had to just become, uh, you know, I feel like I might be dying so those things are really irrelevant right yeah. now. You just had to get compartmental about things, not worry that it was lasting a long time, like figure that either it was, you know, every day you just have to trust. And it's a little bit like business in a weird way, like it can feel like an impossibly long process, but the only thing you're in control of is the next tiny baby step. So don't mm. even think about the end. Just do the now and you'll get to the end eventually if you just one step in front of the other. Trust the process. You're sort of saying you had this help and you spoke to some experts and you did the meditation. Where did you start with all that though? Like for someone that's out there listening, it's like did you create a list and then start ticking them off or did you go to someone and they were like, here's all the things that we want you to do because there was quite a lot that you threw in there just then. Even you're saying you did every little step but there was still a lot that you did. Mm. It was – yeah, more kind of a list, more a like my first stop for everything was my GP mm-hmm. and I'd had the same GP through this whole time. She's still my GP. She's extraordinary. There's a women's clinic near us that I've always gone to and she was just wonderful and very good at sort of talking me through the Western medicine side of things, but being very open if I, you know, my mum has always seen a Chinese medicine doctor and that's done wonder. She had endo. She, like I'm adopted. So she, you know, when she was going through IVF, like she had gone through her own health experience where Western medicine wasn't the only answer for her. So when I sort of said to my GP, I'm not getting like the antibiotics have done a lot, but like, what else can I do? And she's, there's sort of nothing else in that treatment program that you can do. She was very open to whatever else, you know, you need to do, you go and do. So then I was sort of like, okay, well, I've seen her, I've done the, the, everything she's told me to do, what else can I add mm-hmm. to my kind of repertoire really? And that that's where you start to build out your your toolkit, just like you would for anything. Like if you were going to, you wanted to go to the Olympics, you'd start with, you know, one coach and they might mm-hmm. recommend a physio and they might recommend a mindset coach. Like you sort of build out your team. So the next step was Chinese medicine and acupuncture, which I'd done. Like I, I was a ballerina originally and I had 
done, you know, I'd seen this Chinese medicine doctor many times and he'd helped remove inflammation and all these kinds of things for years. So I went back to him and he, I think, probably had the most impact on my energy levels quite immediately. By going to acupuncture, I took a lot of like herbs and dietary tonics and supplements and vitamins, like more vitamin B, you know, the things I couldn't produce by myself. He kind of added a whole layer. And then it was the psychologist that added the whole layer of like, you think that you're only healing physically. Yeah. But a lot of adrenal fatigue is mental burnout. And I had, you know, it's trendy now and not trendy, sorry. It's more spoken about and more widely understood now. But this was like, seven, eight years ago. So there weren't meditation apps. There weren't immediate places to go to learn about mental health. It was very stigmatized. And I was like a high functioning overachiever who was like, my mental health is definitely not what's wrong. Like my brain is fine. Yeah. But you know, my, even my GP, she was like, look, I know you don't really want to hear this, but I think half your problems in your brain, maybe more. Cause I was like, I'm not running marathons. I'm going (laughs) to work and sitting at a desk. Like I'm not burnt out. She's like, you are, you're just brain burnt out yeah. and your body follows your brain. So your body's telling you because your brain can't burn out. So your body's just like, dude, stop. So then psychologist was the next step of like, what are you burning out about? Like, why is your brain going so fast all the time? Why can you not slow down? What are these behaviors? Where are they coming from? And how can we, you know, help slow you down really? And when I look back at my whole life, I'm like, I've always been trying to go faster. My brain goes faster than my body. Yeah. And my poor body is trying to catch up and it can't. Like, There's, you know, part of my philosophy with C's, the A's, you don't have limits. You can do whatever you want in life, blah, blah, blah. But really a grounding part of that is actually you can't do anything in your life if you don't (laughs) learn that you can't do everything in life, you know? Yes. And I had to really acknowledge, and I still deal with it, that like my body has very clear limits and there's, you know, your potential doesn't, but your body to achieve that potential does. So you need to like slow the fuck down. Yeah. It's the yin and the yang. It's like your greatest strength, your greatest weakness. What makes you fly and be brilliant is what pulls you under at times. Mm-hmm. And I think when it's your brain, we're so used to, it's like we just expect it to work. We expect it to be on. And if you've always been able to use it and it's always been strong, it's crazy because it's not like you can see it. It's not yes. like a broken arm or it's not like you've lost weight in your brain. It's your brain doesn't change physically but all of a sudden things get harder or foggier and it's like, what? (laughs) What just happened? Give it back. I want it back. (laughs) And part of being so underweight, I was having, you know, I mentioned panic attacks physically because my body was like so compromised, but they kept going after I got physically healthy, a physically healthy base. And now can connect the dots. I'd I'd had physical manifestations of anxiety quite a few times in my childhood, like episodes I can remember. And we just thought, I don't know, I was like stressed out or whatever. But connecting the dots later, I was like, oh, that was anxiety because my brain just goes too fast. And so that was why I went to the psychologist because I was like, I actually called an ambulance one night or well, my mum called an ambulance because my panic attack was manifesting as a heart attack. Yeah. My lips went blue. My arms went numb. My throat closed over. I couldn't breathe. Like we thought I was literally having a heart attack because my heart, you could feel it. You could see it coming out of my neck. And I'd always thought, I think anxiety is such a misnomer because anxiousness is a normal emotion. Everyone's mm-hmm. supposed to feel anxious. Anxiety is 
physiological. It doesn't, you don't necessarily feel anxious about anything. You're not necessarily even worried, but your body is like, I can't cope. Yeah. Often about like a year's worth of stuff that isn't consciously making you anxious as a feeling. It's just too, too much of everything. And it's like, Stress sometimes, even the most positive stress is still stress. And I talk to people about that with fitness, like going and doing fitness is great, but it's still stress. Being really busy in your mind and achieving things is still stress. Even though it could be positive stress, it's still layers and layers and layers and you're still adding to the backpack all the time. Mm. And there's only so much we can take before our body starts to shut down. Yeah, absolutely. And that was, I love that you mentioned that because that was the next sort of chapter that was a couple of years later. But first in in that time, it was learning that, you know, I had never really learned to say no just because I was too excited. And, you know, when you're young, you can say yes and still you have endless energy and your body will put up with a lot of stuff. But that was my first real acknowledgement that you have to use no to be able to make space for everything else. What then got really difficult is a few years later, so I got back to slowly, slowly got back to being able to work full-time hours and then slowly, slowly reintroduce social activities around those hours and not needing to, you know, I got less and less strict as my body and mind could cope with a full-time load of life again. But I burnt out. So then once the business started through this, you know, in the background, I ended up in the first year of business, the irony of starting a wellness business because of your wellness and then having another episode of adrenal fatigue in 2016 was because I didn't learn that you have to say no to fun things also because things that feel good are also stimulating. And you're right, like you can have too much of a good thing as well as Mm -hmm. too much of a bad thing. And that's really hard for your brain because the signals are only usually I don't like this, don't do it. Mm. But when you're like, I like this, this is good, why would you say no to it? Yes, it's like it's really I love that we're having this conversation because it doesn't get spoken about. Like I don't know that I've ever heard anyone and I'm a psych and I read all this stuff but not people people don't talk about how you have to be able to protect yourself and protecting yourself is learning what to say no to, whether it's the good stuff or the stuff that's hard or the stuff that's overloading. Like it's learning where that barrier is and then learning the skills on how to protect it. And it still upsets me now to have to use no for things that, you know, might be something you've dreamed about for ages and or might be something you've worked incredibly hard for. But if you look at the schedule and you do the math and it doesn't work, you can't do it because otherwise it will cost you. You have to see the cost of, you know, if you push yourself too far, it could wipe you out for months, which Mm. then means it's a no to everything. So you might Mm. as well learn to use no sparingly but well so that you never end up in that position where it's said for you. And learning to say no, how did you learn that? I mean, it sounds simple, but it's not. Like, did you practice? Did you have one-liners? Did you, like, how did you actually learn to say no? Yeah, I love that you're asking the practical side of it because that's the hardest part and that Mm. is the bit that, you know, mostly doesn't get spoken about. It was partly when I was really unwell having to say no, like the, it it was an automatic no that helped me be able to craft the wording or get used to the feeling of how uncomfortable it was because I had no choice. Like I genuinely would not, even if I wanted to, would not have been able to get dressed and go to some of those things. So I got a lot of practice when it was inevitable before I had to practice and do it when it wasn't inevitable. And it was just like finding the right language is a really important thing because if you're someone who's a people pleaser or you hate feeling rude or abrupt, you know, 
saying no, I can't is probably not going to be comfortable for you. Like, mm. no, I can't go. And then you over explain, I can't go because my dog has an appointment at blah, blah, blah. Like, I had to really get used to A, you don't have to over explain. B, if it makes you feel better to over explain, then you absolutely can. You know, find language that, like, I ended up getting a template that I could copy and paste and then tweak a little bit that I felt matched my tone. It was warm. It was, I'm so appreciative. It was, please invite me back again one day, but I can't right now because I. Yeah genuinely can't fit it in, but not because I don't care about this opportunity. I love that you talked about that template because I I did that with someone last week. And I think this is a really good little tip for people listening is that you can actually write out a script. You can actually sit down. And I had to do this when I had my stroke. We wrote a script for people that were my really close people. We wrote a script for the next level out. So people that I worked with or people that knew me that were acquaintance. And then we wrote a script for strangers. And that just, you feel equipped then when you go in, you may never need it. But if you do, Mm -hmm. you've already rehearsed it. Yeah, absolutely. And you've figured out what wording is going to help you minimize that icky feeling when you first press send that might otherwise cause you to go, oh, far out, I'll do it anyway, you know? So I think practice definitely. And the more you exercise that and notice the feedback of when the day comes and you're totally depleted and you couldn't have fitted it in, knowing that feeling of, oh, my God, I don't have to go anywhere tonight, like I've got it out to myself or whatever it might be, the more you practice and get good like results from that, the more then you're incentivized next time to go, actually, I need that night and I know it's going to feel good. Even though this feels a little bit yuck, the no is going to really create yes later. Yeah. And what was some of the fundamental building blocks? So the mindset we've spoken about, what were some of the other fundamental building blocks that helped you get back to the speed that you wanted to operate? And that may not have been the speed you were operating at, but the speed mm. that you were, your new speed. A really important one for me, and again, I think the most important advice I can ever give anybody about achieving anything, whether it's health or goals or work or relationships, is, again, your body and mind are so clever, they will tell you what they like and what they don't like, and that's going to be different for everyone. So all you really have to notice is what feels terrible and what feels great and kind of hack your own system. Like know what your habits are, know what your weaknesses are and build your life around those. So my biggest issue is even though I knew all those things, if an opportunity would come up and I got really excited about it, I'd just ignore it all. I'd just be like, yep, amazing. And then you know, I'd eat into the time that I really needed to make that exception, but then I'd make that exception every single week and then I'd get sick again. And so I had to, what works for me is to block things out in my calendar. Like my whole calendar is colored. There's no like gaps. And I treat like downtime or do not book anything on this day as a meeting. Like it has to go in. I love in. that you say that. I, yes, it's like you wouldn't meet a meeting. You wouldn't miss a meeting with your boss. Don't miss it with yourself, but like yeah. table it, have it in there, written out. It's literally in there. It is. There are nights where you have to look at the week as a whole. And I do the math in advance of like, these are the things that I can't avoid. They are locked in their meetings or their work or their whatever. And logically, I'll look at it and go, That day, like, so even after, you know, I've been emceeing since Friday, I missed a weekend because I worked on the weekend. I went straight into emceeing every day, like long days, even though it was Mm. in paradise, like long days and then flying home. And then I flew straight to an event last night. So I was like, today I can't do anything that's like a big work of it. I can't Mm. film today. I can't 
do a keynote today. I like can't have anything first thing in the morning because I'm probably going to want to have a slow morning to just like unpack. And, you know, in the past, I wouldn't have done the overall math of the week Mm. and looked and saw that that didn't fit. I would have gone, Friday is a, a day of the week. Let's do day of the week stuff that day. And I also wouldn't have looked at the weekend and gone like in other weekends, I can have lots of catch ups or I could go out for, you know, like go away with a friend or something. This weekend has to be at home doing nothing and blocking that out though. So if I did want to try, you know, if someone said, are you free on Saturday at 12? If I looked at my calendar, it was blank. I'd be like, yeah, I'm free on Saturday at 12. If I look at my calendar and says, do not book anything this weekend, I'll go, Maybe I shouldn't say yes, but let's do it next weekend. And I I really hope that people listening are taking this on because that's the exact same skill that I use and I have in my diary for this week, do not book another appointment written across the top. I wrote that out because for the same reason, but that is how when people say, how do you do so much? How do you achieve so much? How do you keep well? Kind of ironic because I'm not at the moment, but it's these (laughs) systems, it's these things, right? It's they, They sound so small, but they are so fundamentally huge and we're Mm. both talking about we use the same strategy in that space it's like you chunk out that time I actually go one step further and chunk out my time with my family like I'll actually yeah I'll I'll do a little thing it'll be like family time and it might Mm. be from 12 and my husband's like can't we just be free I'm like yeah not if you want me to do it (laughs) I'm like I'll put it in whenever you want it like I'm happy to be free and flexible in when you need it but it needs to be in my diary and it needs to be color-coded and needs to be written there because nothing comes into that space once it's there nothing else can eat into that Mm. and it's like it's just protecting that time like from being absorbed into something else Uh, but you might not be a visual learner like I like being able to see the week as a like visual blocking and they're all different colors as well so like active energy requiring things are in pink if the week is looking very pink Mm. I know this is particularly important that this week you're not, you know, squishing things here and there. If there's not that much pink stuff and there's stuff booked in, but it's like editing or really passive kind of work at home, you know, I can be more flexible in a week like that. But if you don't do any of that and your week just looks blank, you're not going to be smart with your time. How could yeah. you? Yeah. But if you're not a visual learner, you know, that might not be the way that you trigger your brain. You just have to work like, how do I hack my own decision making process? Mm-hmm to work better for me. Which takes assessment and it takes time. It takes thinking and looking and observing and then trying something and seeing if it works and doesn't work, right? Like it's not something you're just born to know. We know it intuitively, but we don't tap into that. Absolutely. It's trial and error. And still now, I mean, you would be the same, even with the most acute removal of all your abilities to do anything. Like we lost our entire capacity to be human beings. You would think we would have figured out how to Mm -hmm. hack our system by now. Mm -hmm. I'm still trying and messing up all the time. There are Mm -hmm. weeks where I'm like, I did not do this well. Like I have not done a good job. I've cancelled on everyone because I screwed up my own like equation kind of thing. But it's just that, you know, most people aren't actually trying to figure out what works. They're just in the moment making decisions and then wonder why it all doesn't work out. So just even being conscious of trying to tweak your habits and your lifestyle around what makes you feel the best you. Yeah. And I guess one more thing that I picked up when you were talking then, and I was so running out of time, I want to keep talking for hours, <laughs> is that when we talk about habits, you know, I was listening to you and you're talking about 
creating the space and then the habit comes into it. Whereas often people think about habit, I should be going to the gym and they think it's the gym that's the habit. It's like, no, setting the setting the time in the diary is the habit or having your yes. clothes out the night before is the habit. So that's what will get you set up for success. Whereas I think sometimes we're a little late to the party with habits. It's like we think it's the actual thing that we need to be working on, but it's the thing before the thing that actually sets us up for success. And that's what you're talking about when you totally. put it in the diary. Totally. Absolutely. That's so important. It's like actually once you're in the gym, the habit of the gym, or once you know that you're like you've got time to go to the gym, you'll go to the gym. Mm -hmm. It's not that you don't want to go to the gym. It's just you don't leave yourself the right circumstances or environment to actually make it there. Yeah. And so if you were to pull out, we've talked about so much, so I just want to pull out one gold nugget from your time. So from everything that you went through with that adrenal fatigue, the anxiety attacks, I mean, we didn't even unpack them. What is one thing that you've taken away from that experience that allows you to live a fuller life? Oh, gosh, that's such a hard one. No pressure. I know. <laughs> I, I think the overall like message in health, in optimizing your career, in your relationships, in everything, the, the overarching advice that has helped me, I think, the most is what we've already touched on, the idea that we live in an age where access to information is like a thousandfold to what our parents could access, which is amazing because it means you can figure out that you have things like adrenal fatigue and access the many different ways that other people have healed. Find out ideas you might not have thought of before. You know, that it's we've got so much at our fingertips, which is wonderful, but we live in a very noisy, incredibly noisy landscape, which means that often in any problem that you're trying to fix, you're using methods that have worked for other people mm. and then wondering like, well, why isn't it working for me? Mm-hmm. And I think it's so important to take inspiration from what other people have done. Obviously, that's how you learn. But just say, like the WHO said, the paleo diet is the diet for optimal life. If you tried it and you felt crappy all the time, you should not just keep doing what the WHO says, you know, like your body is smarter than anything else that you could listen to or hear. And that goes for the same, you know, when people like finding your passion or that kind of thing. I have had people on the show or people who I've just met in life whose passion is like literally someone else's nightmare. Mm. People are passionate about and like and are good at dramatically different things. And can you imagine the world if it wasn't that way? We're supposed to be so different in what we need for our health, in what we like for our work, in who we love as our partners. Like it's meant to be that way. So above all, try and block out the noise of what everyone else is doing or what everyone else thinks you should do. Draw from others for inspiration and ideas and obviously expertise with like when it comes to medicine, you probably need like doctors. <laughs> but overall, like your intuition of what is best for you is probably going to give you the best feedback that you can ever have. Mm. And I think the most successful, and I don't even like that as a measurement, the most fulfilled people that I tend to see are the people who are really good at that, who are just good at going, you know what, these things worked for those people, blah, blah, blah. But I know 
this works best for me. I'm just going to keep doing it. Yeah. And I know you love quotes and I'm thinking of one as you're talking there. It's like the grass isn't greener on the other side of the fence. The grass is greener where you water it, right? So, you know, you got to water your own backyard. You got to work out what fertilizer, what water, like stop putting mm. like poison on it. You've got to, you've got to work out your own back landscape and then work out the things that work for that with the seasons and the changes mm. and the chapters and and be okay with what worked last week isn't going to work this week or next month, you know. It's it's being mm. adaptable and re- that's what resilience is, having this massive big toolbox that you can kind of pull from and know that one right way for one person isn't necessarily the right way for everyone. Absolutely. And if you're, you know, if your lawn is like freaking crazy tropical cactuses, then mm-hmm. that's fine. You just got to work with your cactuses. You, know, yep. you can't change them into a different lawn. Yep. You just, mine are flipping crazy. I feel like there's some <laughs> weird species out in the Amazon. <laughs> and that's the awesome thing about podcasting is you get to like see behind the scenes, right? It's like you draw back the curtains and have a little look behind you think, whoa, you know, like today in particular, sometimes I feel like everyone's looking at this perfect scene and they're like, why is my scene not like that? And so it's really Mm. good to have some honest conversations, some real and raw conversations around, well, I know it looks great and there are aspects of it that are fabulous, but there are aspects as well that I'm still working on and I'm still human. Absolutely. Yeah. So I love to end our podcast with asking the question about, is there someone in your world? (laughs) It's funny when I was thinking about you, I was actually wondering, I wonder if she'll say that. Is there someone or something in your world that truly makes you belly laugh? Oh, oh my gosh. Lots of people and lots of things. I belly laugh a lot and it's very loud and <laughs> anyone who's ever met me will have heard it because it's like I've got a very low <laughs> threshold for laugh, for belly laughter. <laughs> oh, my dog, Paul the Golden Retriever, belly laughter all the time at his funny little antics. He's just hilarious. Memes, I flipping love the internet. I think like the meme community has stepped up so much. Nick and I go on YouTube tangents and look at bloopers from like, (laughs) so the best bloopers ever are from comedians who are so clever, like Will Ferrell. Even if you don't like him, the amount of his scripts in movies that are ad-lib, like just totally off the top of his head, that all of his co-stars have no idea he's going to (laughs) say is amazing. So watching the bloopers of like, experienced award-winning actors lose their bananas because Will Smith, uh, Will Ferrell's just said some, hel- oh my God, Will Smith, he's obviously on the brain this week, has had some, <laughs> you know, said some crazy thing. Like you can't not laugh. You can't not belly laugh at how hilariously funny they are. Ange, one of my best That's friends. That's who I thought you were going to say because I've listened yeah. to so much of your podcast. And I saw the other day on your Instagram, there was a footage of you two just laughing, like trying to film oh. a podcast, just laugh. So that was who I thought you might say yeah, without knowing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because that's the relationship I see come through is you guys just like seriously would laugh at a pen if you got given the opportunity to. Oh, have laughed at pens before, absolutely. <laughs> we, we were like her and I are just like our communication is 95% laughter and weird eye signals and just like we have so many stupid jokes that don't make sense to anybody else. But across a room we'll just do like a weird eye roll and just, and just incontrollable, like uncontrollable laughter. Oh, and it makes you feel so good and light, doesn't it, when you laugh? Like, oh, it just, even now, just listening to you talk, I have a biggest smile on my face. Oh, <laughs> me too. You know, this has been amazing. Oh, I just, 
it's the one it's the, one of the sad things about podcasting. I'm always like, is this are we coming to the end? Like I know. Can we I know, keep I'm going? like, can we just be Joe Rogan where we like record for five hours? All day. Yes. <laughs> So thank you so much. And, you know, just for um, all truth be told, it's you heard both of us say we blocked time out in our diaries and I think both of us had blocked out today. So I actually just want to honour that space and say I really appreciate you coming in because this was one of my days that I was like, I'm not doing any work and I heard you say that as well. So that's the other part is sometimes there is that little bit that gives that little bit extra and I really appreciate your time, especially coming off such a huge week and I hope this is the first of many. <laughs> You've made it an absolute pleasure. Uh, it's been such a joy. I can't believe you're new to podcasting. You're so good at it. I feel like you make such space for an amazing conversation. I haven't met anyone who researches their guests as much as I do until I met you. And it's <laughs> an honor. It makes you feel very valued and very safe to say, you know, anything because I kind of feel like you already know who I am as a person. And yeah. I'm so excited for your podcast to launch. How great was that? absolutely love Sarah and if you want to follow Sarah find her links in the show notes if you want to follow us and get the latest scoop make sure you jump on our Facebook group challenges that change us and thank you for joining us and we will see you all next week Thank you everyone for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode.